Um, well, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, as, as Katie shared, I am a physician. I'm not a pastor. So get ready. This may take longer than, uh, than a professional uh, would take with you. But I am friends with Bill Coutrere. And um, when he called and asked if I would consider coming as a leader of a partner ministry of Fellowship Nashville's to bring a message, uh, even though I didn't have a lot of time or margin to think about preparing, um, I told him I would pray about it. <clears throat> and that's a dangerous thing to do if you're maybe thinking that you don't want to necessarily take something on. Um, and the next morning in the men's group I'm a part of, the scripture was the story of the widow's mite uh, who gave everything she had, even though it wasn't very much, back to God. And I was convicted and called Bill and said, sign me up. Um, and so silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. Um, and it is really a longstanding familiarity with this story from John chapter 9 uh, about the pool of Siloam and about the ministry of Siloam Health using some... Uh, of those stories to illustrate the text. The second caveat today is that I heard Mark Irving actually preached on this same passage last spring. So how many of you are new uh, to fellowship? All right, great. So for you guys, you know, just pretend you didn't hear that, but otherwise consider this an improvisation on and building on some of that great exegesis he did with some uh, anecdotes uh, thrown in from my life and work. Well, just a background on Salome. You know, Katie alluded to it. You may already be familiar with this, uh, but Salome is a charitably funded nonprofit healthcare organization that exists to share the love of Christ by serving those in need through healthcare. And with the help of over 400 volunteers annually, our staff of 50 uh, provides comprehensive medical care to about 5,000 unique patients who are uninsured and unable to get care elsewhere. We do it at two locations one just down the road over on 8th Avenue in Gale Lane. Uh, and the other, a new clinic we opened in Antioch in the middle of the pandemic last summer. Um, we also provide community health services, especially during the pandemic, to immigrants and refugees and uh, do student education for dozens of health profession students annually. Um, as you can see from the slide, I think um, Salome is all about hospitality. Um, one of these pictures is from my early years at Salome, making a house call to a, a lady named Mary. Uh, who lived in Edge Hill, was one of the proud owners of the Edge Hill Polar Bears in her front yard, as you can see. Um, and the other photo reflects a, a scene of reverse hospitality, of us receiving in some of the newer patients that you'll hear about uh, that have begun to come to Salome over the years from all over the world. I love this image because you know roughly 90% of our patients are foreign-born, coming from 80 countries and speaking over 70 languages. I only speak 20 or 30 of those, so I need help for the others. Um, but seriously, there is a, uh, a real taste of the kingdom of God every time you walk in uh, to Salome. Uh, the last thing I would say is that Salome couldn't exist without our church partners. The word Salome, as we'll read, is really an Aramaic word which means sent. And it comes from the fact that the, the pool of Salome uh, outside Jerusalem was, was actually a cistern that collected waters channeled from a spring uh, outside the city walls. Uh, so that the city could survive a siege if it was attacked. Um, and our church partners who pray for us, support us financially, send volunteers, are truly the spring that keeps the Pool of Siloam life-giving. So thank you, Fellowship Nashville, for your partnership. So for today's message, I think it's important to have a little bit of context. For those of you who were in uh, the, the Gospel of John a lot in previous months, you'll know um, that John was the beloved disciple the one who was recognized by Jesus as his closest companion among the 12. 
He was uh, the one who lived the longest and the one who was charged with explaining, interpreting the gospel to the Greek-speaking non-Jewish world around the Mediterranean. Uh, as for the preceding chapters in this gospel, let's just say there's a lot of red ink. You know, if you, these aren't around too much anymore, but some of you remember red-letter Bibles, you know, where the actual words of Jesus are in red. There's a lot of that in the preceding chapters where he is explaining his, uh, his identity uh, to no avail in many cases, uh, trying to articulate through imagery, metaphor, uh, stories, that he is indeed God's son come to redeem and restore God's creation. Um, the context, though, is one of a lot of hostility. So here's just a little snippet from uh, the end of chapter 8. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered these Pharisees, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So let that sink in for a bit. Jesus hiding. He was trying to convince the leaders of his identity and mission, and they would have none of it. I think this, is, uh, this kind of reaction is one of the reasons that he was prone to, to share truths in the form of a story or a parable. And sometimes he goes one step further and uses a real-life event as a living parable. Um, and that, I would suggest, is the key to understanding John chapter 9. So let's look at the text of uh, the chapter itself. It's actually one of the longest stories in the Gospels, and we'll, we'll hone in on a few pieces of it to get the narrative. It begins, as he went along, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus and his disciples encounter someone with congenital blindness, a man who is dependent on the community to meet his basic needs and knows it deeply. Are there any medical students in the house today? If not, I know there are a lot circulating through these churches at times. This is a natural thing for medical students to do. Apprentices to a healer, you know. We do this in the hospital. We speculate about the cause of a presenting condition. Is it infectious? Is it genetic? Is it developmental? Jesus' apprentices similarly wonder, within the context of their own worldview, it had to be one of these two things, right? He sinned or his parents sinned. Pastor Mark called this karma, you know, the, the, the idea that what comes around goes around. It's a very common way of thinking about tragedy in the world. But look how Jesus responds. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I love this response. Jesus isn't denying the doctrine of original sin, but he's, he's highlighting a change of orientation that's critical for his disciples to see, to move from a backwards glance to a forwards glance from a finding blame to, to imagining possibilities. This was why our founders named Salome what they did. Uh, many of the uh, founders went to uh, Belmont Church. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the church now on Music Row. At the time, 30 years ago, it was a church not unlike Fellowship Nashville, meeting in a rented space, deeply committed to uh, the city when a lot of churches were moving to the suburbs. And one Sunday, a, a physician from Vanderbilt, Dr. David Gregory, was sitting in the pew, probably a little desk, makeshift desk at West End Middle School, um, taking notes and not listening to the sermon. 
So if I see somebody looking down at your phone, I understand you're just hatching kingdom plans, right? <laughs> right. What would it look like to translate this expression of the kingdom that, that they were experiencing on Sunday to Monday? Um, many of the health professionals there worked in local emergency rooms and hospitals and saw the cycle of patients coming through uh, with conditions that should be treated in an outpatient setting um, and being spending lots of money and time for conditions that could have been prevented. They were tired of offering quick fixes for conditions that were complex and had lots of underlying factors that drove the patient's behavior. Even though it was difficult to care for them, there were factors beyond their control, things like a broken healthcare system that didn't offer primary care or insurance for the majority of these uh, neighborhoods in Nashville. Generational poverty, addiction, trauma, and family breakdown. Food deserts, which left whole neighborhoods without access to healthy foods and increased diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. And a steady loss of spiritual hope as all those problems compounded. And yet, these patients and professionals began to actually experience the reality of Christ together uh, in church at Belmont and began to hope they could design a, uh, a health ministry that would be a living parable of the kingdom of God for this broken healthcare system. Uh, they would not try and cast blame or discern who was worthy enough to receive care, uh, but they would channel God's grace in all its various forms, spiritual, financial, professional, to help those in need regardless of their circumstances or ability to pay. And um, a funny thing happened on the way to the health clinic. Now, they started in Edgehill, which was a largely African-American community, but as TenCare passed and a new federally qualified health center was built up the street, um, some of those patients began to get access to primary care. And then one day, a Vietnamese refugee showed up, this man, actually, standing next to Dr. Gregory. And then he told two friends, and they told two friends. And by the time I was volunteering back in the early to mid-'90s, the clinic had begun to be, to be a majority Vietnamese refugees. I had never even known that there was a community of Vietnamese refugees in Nashville growing up here my whole life. Well, I remember seeing one of these patients with Dr. Gregory on a, on a volunteer clinic shift. She had had a cervical cancer screening a couple of weeks before. We were there to give her her results. It was good news. We walked in. I told her through an interpreter, uh, it's a normal test. And I thought nothing of it. And she broke down and started to cry. And, you know, I was kind of befuddled. We waited, eventually sorted out through the interpreter that uh, she had been diagnosed with cervical cancer in Vietnam. And because of her lack of access to specialty care, she had assumed it would kill her. And she'd been living with a death sentence over her head. And we asked her, how long have you been here in the United States? And she said, two years. Can you imagine? She lived within a mile or two of three different medical centers. And yet she was terrified to seek care because what she'd heard about the cost, the confusion uh, going into a place without language interpretation, and just the, the time that people would take. And I said, well, why did you come here now? And she said, well, we heard that you love your patients here. And that, my friends, was a powerful lesson for a young medical student. Um, Love, in that sense, looked a lot different than just a warm hug, although it often involved that, but it involved a sliding scale, you know, not turning away people for ability to pay, being open after hours, taking extra time to cross culture and language barriers. 
And over the years, we saw more and more different waves of immigrants come through from different countries around the world. Well, I want to bring us back to the story. Uh, that's, that's just the, the reason Salome is named Salome. But, you know, when Jesus um, hears this, um, he, he does something different. He's, he's, he, after saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on this man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Salome. The word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing Notice the curious aspects of this healing. He spits, he fashions a poultice of mud, he anoints the man's eyes, and then he sends him away. There's no other instance in Scripture uh, of a healing that looks like this. Uh, it's a reminder to me that Vanderbilt's uh, medical center's advertising notwithstanding that this is the original personalized medicine. Jesus isn't working off a template or a script every time he encounters somebody in need of healing. He's uniquely tailoring um, the need of the hour for that patient, that person at that time. He knows each of us intimately as well. Though we may not care to admit it, some of us may be just barely holding it together this morning, for instance. Maybe you yelled at your kids a little bit on the way out the door. Um, maybe you're suffering from long COVID symptoms and you're not sure what it is. Uh, maybe you're just battling low-grade anxiety about where you stack up in life. The good news is Jesus isn't ashamed, surprised, or in a rush with any of us. He knows and meets us exactly where we are. Well, that's great, but is he going to spit on me, you're wondering? Um, I hope not. Um, but why did he choose to heal the blind man this way? I think there are a number of possibilities. Mark brought up a few in his teaching on this earlier as well. One is that fashioning a poultice was actually an ancient medical you know, form of healing. So it wouldn't be too unusual to apply some kind of poultice to a patient's eyes. Some suggest that the two-step process gave the blind man a chance to demonstrate obedience and faith or gave Jesus some space from the crowd that would inevitably form when his healing happened. But there's another profound element here as well. Consider the imagery of God kneeling in the dirt, in the flesh, and infusing life into that dirt to restore an image in one of his image bearers. Have you seen this imagery somewhere else? Maybe one of the earliest books of the Bible? <laughs> um, yeah, Genesis. This is the imagery of creation. God the creator breathing into the dirt to create a living soul in his image. God getting his hands dirty, so to speak, infusing matter with spirit to make something very good. It's our origin story, and John is tapping into it. It's consistent with how he frames his whole gospel. Unlike the other synoptic gospel writers, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all began with various points in Israel's history when they told the story of Jesus. John goes all the way back to the beginning, literally using the same words as Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word. And he closes his gospel with another image, drawing on this account of Jesus in the locked room with the disciples, breathing on them as he's commissioning his new humanity to go out into the world. There's some other textual clues here in John 9 that point this way. Consider Jesus' comments right before he made the poultice of mud. This happened, he said, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Notice the repeated words. It's the Bible's way of saying, pay attention. What word do you see repeated in this text? Three times at least. Work. (laughs) And where do you think the first use of that word is in Scripture? Yeah, right back there in, in the Genesis creation account. By the seventh day, Genesis 2, 2 says, God had finished the work he had been doing, and so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Notice that all the activity of Genesis 1, the creation account, the first six days, is summed up with the phrase God's work. Years later, the Pharisees had latched onto the notion that God was done working, and they had inflated their own role to fill that void policing even the smallest acts of work on the Sabbath, acts like kneading dough or maybe mud. Yet Jesus interprets God's activity in the world very differently. As he put it a few chapters earlier, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. If Jesus is our most trusted interpreter of Scripture, and he surely is, then God is continuing to work in the world, creatively sustaining us all moment by moment. He models what it looks like to partner with God the Father in the ongoing work of creation. I love this imagery. You see, in my early Christian life, I often thought about Jesus' work primarily in very spiritual terms, you know, preaching, teaching, evangelizing, signs and wonders. Um, Part of that is related to that experience Katie referred to I had in Africa, you know, in a very dramatic um, Christian context. But at the end of the day, it was almost like medicine was just an appetizer for the real work, the spiritual work that God was going to do in our patients' lives. And there's an important truth there. Um, As a Christian health center, Salom always has wanted to leave room for the spiritual dimensions of care, especially when everyone else seemed to be neglecting it. Um, our, physical, our patients' physical complaints are often just the tip of an iceberg of deeper social, emotional, financial, and often spiritual brokenness lurking deep beneath the surface. It's especially pronounced in caring for the underserved, and they tend to be overlooked by doctors who aren't trained or incentivized to address them. Well, one of the beauties of a charitably funded health center is that we're freed to focus on what helps the patient and not what's reimbursed. We have our challenges, but that's not one of them. Um, And that's why we train our staff, among other things, to take spiritual histories as a part of a broader social history, to partner with an interdisciplinary team of behavioral health, social work, and pastoral care, and to be prepared to pray with patients who desire it. There's so much more I could say about this, but suffice it to say that we expect God to show up, and he often does. I remember one day early in the years of Salome, before we had access to a phone-based language line, I was caring for a young woman from Bangladesh. She was there with her husband, who had to interpret for her awkwardly. Uh, And I began increasingly to feel a little nervous that there was something going on in her situation. And I wondered if she might be a victim of some form of abuse. I remember stepping outside the the room and kind of putting my hands around my head and actually just praying out loud, Lord, I I need a way to, to understand what this woman is saying without her husband in the room. And then somebody who was volunteering down the hall overheard me and asked, well, what what language does she speak? And I said, Bengali. And she said, well, I speak Bengali. (laughs) 
she was a medical student at Vanderbilt whose parents had immigrated from South Asia. And here she's sitting here as I needed that very linguistic skill to break through with this patient. Things like that happen at Salome. I've seen patients prayed for and healed of chronic pain, diabetes, infertility, and even paralysis. <laughs> um, it's been pretty remarkable what God has done. He's even brought many patients, including some volunteers, to know and experience uh, new life in Christ uh, just through their experience working, care, being cared for at Salome. So God has done some amazing things. The only problem is they don't happen so often. And um, if we're not careful, I at least can get impatient and fall into the trap that the disciples fell into of wondering if it's not happening, is it because I'm not praying enough? Is it because we don't have enough faith? Or if it's happening under someone else's care, is, is there something wrong with me? The sin of comparison, stealing our joy. Um, as Jesus makes clear, though, the living God is personal and approachable, but he isn't a vending machine. He's, ob he's not obligated to perform on command for us. A second problem with this over-spiritualized expectation of God's work is that it obscures the very real work of ongoing, sustaining um, creation that God is doing all around us, which brings us back to the story of Genesis. I want to suggest that there's an archetype at work here, a basic principle or way of working that God intends us to follow. First of all, there was a task. Consider the opening lines of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Hebrew words formless and empty, tohu wabohu, set the stage. Tohu is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe a desert wasteland. Other translations are chaos or confusion. If you're a March Madness fan, you may have even heard Clark Kellogg on the air channeling his inner Hebrew scholar describing those early round upsets as tohu wabohu. Bohu is used nowhere else in Scripture, but the best interpretation is simply void or empty. So the task before God in Genesis is to give shape to the world and to fill it with physical matter and meaning and purpose. And that is exactly what he does in the next six days. I'll spare you the complicated chart that I sometimes have used to, to teach on this topic, but essentially God moves towards chaos and emptiness. And in the first three days, he creates order through a series of separations, dividing day and night, or water and land. Then on days four through six, he fills those newly formed domains with creatures to rule them, the sun and moon and stars for the heavens, for instance. Finally, on the last day, God creates man to reflect what he does, to be his image bearer, deputizing him and them to reflect his creative work on the earth. Verse 128 says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Not to be God's slave, as was common in other ancient Near Eastern cultures and their origin stories, nor to be some kind of overlord, as tempting as that sin has been for us throughout human history, but to be a gracious servant leader of creation itself, moving into residual pockets of chaos and emptiness to cultivate order and fullness. In this view, creation is God's temple, and we are God's priests to take care of it. Note the language in the creation account from Genesis 2. 
the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to care for it. Abad and Shamar. The only other place these two Hebrew words show up in the Old Testament are in reference to the, how the priests were, were called to care for the tabernacle. That's an elevated view of work. The work of mankind included physical work, gardening and agriculture, but also the mental work of conceiving plans, studying and classifying animals, and culture making in general, all in ongoing partnership with God. Paul picks up on these, this language of, uh, in the New Testament as he describes our participation in the new creation that Jesus has inaugurated. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Here's the thing. As the understanding of my role as a partner with God in the work of new creation began to sink in more deeply, my sense of ministry as a physician started to shift subtly. I became less anxious about whether or not God would show up dramatically on any given day and found pleasure in cooperating with him in his quiet work through my natural gifts and training. The fact is that at Salome we encounter chaos and emptiness on a daily basis. Patients who've been frozen out of the healthcare system by no fault of their own, like this former refugee from Bhutan who lived in a refugee camp for 20 years and contracted leprosy while she was there, show up desperate for someone to make sense of their pain, whether physical or emotional. And as I work with them, I find myself channeling that archetype from Genesis 1, moving into their chaos by building rapport, often spreading out a bunch of foreign language medicines on the table, um, taking a careful history and physical exam. And then I find myself prayerfully beginning to fill that void with some order and meaning, developing a list of possible diagnoses, separating some from others, narrowing it down through testing and analysis and the latest research. And then I name their problem, or maybe a list of possible problems, and explain the disease process, co-creating a new story to make meaning out of the patient's chaos. Sometimes it's just enough to give a diagnosis to name the confusion. Other times, by God's grace, we have opportunities to treat it and make it better. But always, we're forming meaning, organizing next steps, and offering the patient hope for his future. And you know what? As we focus on sweating the small stuff in ways like this, God shows up in more visible ways as well. Just last month, a patient that I'll call Jerry came in to see us. He had recently been released from prison after a 30-year sentence for killing a man in his teens. As you might expect, he was hardened and a bit cagey about talking about his past. He had several chronic health conditions, and so we performed a routine history and physical exam. Except it wasn't routine for Jerry. As he went to get his blood work, he started to choke back tears, and he asked our phlebotomist, is this place real? You see, in all those years of mandatory clinic visits uh, behind bars, he had never received such a basic, thorough medical exam. In fact, he'd rarely even been touched. And it just broke him. The next time I saw him, the tough guy bravado had melted. His arms weren't folded in suspicion. He was smiling. And he was ready to discuss his medical problems, but also how he might reconcile with his family and with God. It was like he was a leper who had been touched by Jesus. And in fact, if we take seriously the metaphor of the body of Christ, he had been touched by Jesus. We created a sanctuary, taking the resources that Katie goes out to raise for us. Um, we did good work and then offered it back to God. 
like a priest presenting bread and wine as the fruit of our labors given back to God in communion. Um, God used that work to touch and renew this man like so many others, body and soul. So you say, that's cool for you as a doctor, but what about the rest of us? Well, for the past eight years, I've served a dual role as both CEO and physician. And as a result, I found myself doing a lot more vague administrative-y stuff than I, that I used to poo-poo when I was mainly seeing patients. Um, and yet, what I've learned is that administrators face their own versions of tohu wabohu. <laughs> the issues are complicated, messy, and there's usually no one right answer when it hits my desk. Uh, my patient is now an organization, but the need to move into chaos create order and meaning is still there. And I'm still in partnership with God in the shalom-making process. And you know what? That partnership doesn't just happen in faith-based workplaces. Remember your Bibles. All that stuff from Genesis about God's work and Adam's happened before the fall. The church is often so preoccupied with sin and redemption that we forget that work was always a part of God's good plan for creation. It was complicated by the fall. No doubt. The word toil is introduced in Genesis 3 to convey that sin-induced frustration that taints all our work now. But our everyday work on Monday is just as important as, to God as whatever happens here on Sunday. Perhaps more. So, do you ever wonder if your work matters to God? Are you a student, an entrepreneur, a homemaker, a scientist? Have you ever felt deep down that you were on the B team? not on God's A-team with the missionaries and pastors. If you take nothing else from today's message, I hope you can see how wrong that thinking is. After all, Jesus himself was a carpenter for far longer than his public ministry lasted. And I bet he was a darn good one. Back to John 9. Is that okay? This is a Bible church, right? I mean, you like um, coming back to the Bible. Um, Why did Jesus bend down and make that poultice of clay? Was the move primarily medical, practical, or theological? I suggest the answer is yes. Just as my patients wonder if they ought to pray, change their behaviors, or take their medicine, I usually say yes. Uh, we are whole persons, not reducible to the sum of our parts. There's a sacramental interlocking web of factors that help us heal. Uh, it's usually not a zero-sum game where we just have to choose one. And yet, as important as these themes are, there's one reason Jesus used this particular mode of healing that I think stands out. It was a strategic provocation. Remember the context. All throughout the, gospels to this, the gospel to this point, Jesus was challenging the religious power structures. They hated him for it. They couldn't bear the truth about his identity because it undermined their own sense of security. For the sake of time, I'll quickly survey what happens next. First, the man's neighbors interrogate him about his healing. Then the Pharisees interrogate him. Frustrated, the Pharisees interrogate his parents. And when pressed about who healed their son and how, they plead the fifth, fearful that they might get kicked out of the synagogue. So the Pharisees turn back to the formerly blind man. We pick back up at verse 24. A second time they summon the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. So here's a remarkable sight. One of their own has been miraculously restored. This has never happened uh, in their human experience. 
Um, he's going to be drawn back into the life of the community, be a contributor, be able to serve and work, participate with God in ways he couldn't before. But they don't celebrate. They perseverate. They look backwards instead of forwards, trying to figure out how it was done, whom to blame. They're making the disciples' mistake all over again. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. And they threw him out. How dare you lecture us? They threw him out. And here we see the true cost of healing in a fallen world. Exile. Like chronically ill people and codependent families everywhere, the blind man played a role in the life of that community, and everybody had adjusted to it. By transgressing that role and becoming a living symbol of the inbreaking of God's new creation in Jesus, he challenged that uh, idolatrous authority. And that was too threatening for the religious leaders. Next we read, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus knows our needs. In medical terms, he's, he's making a follow-up visit. For some of you, that's the message you need to hear today. You may be lonely, hopeless, feeling misunderstood, maybe estranged from someone you love. Know that God does not sit back passively and watch. He pursues us. Ironically, it can sometimes be hard to recognize him when he shows up, though. You know, remember, this blind man, this guy was blind the last time he was with Jesus. He doesn't, doesn't know what he looks like. But his heart, his inner vision has been slowly broken open. He's moved through the unexpected grace of suffering and healing to, inst- to refer to Jesus first as the man, then the prophet, then someone of God, and now, dare he believe it, the Lord himself. Then Jesus, sensing the Pharisees lurking, strikes the final provocation. He says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. You know how when Jesus tells a parable, he often has to like follow it up and explain what it was to the disciples that didn't quite get it? This, this is what's happening here with this living parable. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. Jesus springs the trap, and the Pharisees step into it. He doesn't cause their blindness, but he, his presence unmasks it. What lesson can we take from all this? I think the bottom line is that we all suffer from congenital blindness. Not a physical, but a spiritual blindness. We may have 20-20 vision, pre- or post-LASIK, um, but still lose sight of the most important reality. Our nature is God's beloved created beings, the apple of his eye, uh, the children who bear his image in the world and are invited to partner with him in the care of it. The tricky thing about spiritual blindness is it's invisible to us. In the opening lines of his book, The Divine Conspiracy, uh, Dallas Willard tells the story of an Air Force captain 
who was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter over the Arizona desert in the late 1990s. She turned the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent and flew the plane straight into the ground at 400 miles an hour. She was unaware that she was flying upside down. Spiritual blindness, I think, is like that. As the Pharisees demonstrate, it isn't a complete lack of perception. It's more like a disoriented perception. Turning from God's love for us, we idolize good created things, money, career, expertise, ministry, authority, and invest them with more meaning and devotion than they can possibly bear. And as we confidently pursue our vision of life and work, large and in charge, we end up abusing both God's creation temple and his image bearers. We often never realize it until we smack into the ground at a high rate of speed. The good news is that Jesus loves us too much to let us sit in our blindness. He pursues us. He provokes us. He challenges us before it's too late. And then he takes our sin and blindness upon himself. The prophet Isaiah put it this way, Surely he took on our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, struck down and afflicted. The cumulative effect of all those blows? Exile. Like the blind man in John 9, Jesus would eventually be cut off, not just from his community, but from the whole land of the living. As a member of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus knew and relished beauty on a scale we cannot fathom. Yet for our sakes, he surrendered his capacity to enjoy that vision. Entering into the valley of the shadow of death on our behalf, he received the consequences that we all deserve. He became blind so we could see. The good news of the resurrection is that Jesus has overcome that grave. He rose again as the firstborn of the new creation, a foretaste of the new humanity he is calling us to become. And as Jesus puts it at the end of the book of Revelation, behold, I am making all things new. Amen. Amen. John's carefully chosen imagery from Genesis reminds us that our new creation life isn't just a hyper-spiritualized dream state. It's a transformed version of this embodied life, full of meaningful work and rich relationships of a diverse community of people from all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. And he's inviting us to participate now. How might we do that? Jesus simply said, come and see. It's been said that uh, we become like what we attend to. So first and foremost, look to Jesus. Our eyes naturally constrict when we're anxious or afraid, but perfect love casts out all fear, widening the perspective. So spend time with Jesus. Let him melt away your fear. Gaze upon his beauty. Dare to receive his compassion. Experience the wonder of being perfectly loved even when we're amazingly flawed. <laughs> and whenever possible, do so together with your fellow image bearers. That may mean uh, the means of grace is a city group, if that's what you call it here at Fellowship Bible, or time in prayer with a friend, or maybe even a, an intentional living community together. You can encounter Jesus in all those places. But when in doubt, look among the faces of the poor, the homeless, the immigrant, the refugee. As my experience at Saloma tests, the most vulnerable are the living parables for us who God uses to crack open even the hardest of hearts. For so often they, like the man born blind, have been tendered and broken open uh, by the reality of life themselves. So in closing, my question for you today is who are you?
Are you like the blind man begging on the side of the road, already painfully aware of your need? Look to Jesus. Are you like the disciples, oblivious that God is calling you to join him in his work that is right in front of you? Look to Jesus. Are you like the blind man's parents, a comfortable observer, perhaps even a cheerleader for God's work by others, but fearful of what it may cost you to fully participate? Look to Jesus. Or perhaps you're involved like me and the Pharisees in some kind of full-time ministry and thus constantly at risk of self-righteous blindness to our own spiritual need. If so, look to Jesus. Whoever and wherever you are today, look to Jesus and learn to see. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the uh, gift of uh, space and time to hear your word. And uh, thank you for the light that Jesus has shed, the example of his life, but more importantly, uh, the gift of his taking on the consequence for us of our own blindness. Open our eyes this week as we go into the life of work and family and whatever is before us. Help us to be agents of new creation, restoring order to chaos and filling it with your meaning and purpose. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.